You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Russia's remaining allies get ever less patient with Russia's misadventure in Ukraine. China locks down like it's 2020. And France's plans to grow cabbage on the moon. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Rachel Cunliffe and Vincent McAvenny will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Wales' former women's football team captain Laura McAllister about what happened when Qatari stadium staff refused entry to her hat. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor at The New Statesman and by Vincent McAvenny, political reporter and regular Monocle 24 voice. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, and Rachel, and a special hello to you, making your first appearance uh, on the Daily. So by way of light introductory banter, introduce yourself, if you would, to our listeners. Well, I'm not entirely new to, to Monocle. I used to do your early morning weekend shows, and this is much more civilised. So thank you very much for, for having me back in the, in the evenings. Uh, I'm at the New Statesman, specialised mostly in UK politics. But if there's one thing that we've learnt from the last couple of years, politics just doesn't stay in its box, does it? Uh, it does not stay in its box box, uh, as tonight's show will be demonstrating. Uh, we will be talking about politics from around the world and possibly comparing it and contrasting it with British politics. But on that subject, Vincent, have you been covering much of it lately? Have things calmed down a little bit now I that think... we've had the same Chancellor for, I don't know, a month and the same Prime Minister for, for weeks? <laughs> yeah, that fever dream of Liz Truss's premiership sort of slips away, doesn't it? I think this is exactly the intent that Rishi Sunak has, and particularly uh, his hiring of uh, uh, Amber de Bosson, who was a previous colleague of mine at ITV News as Director of Communications, I think they just know uh, that apart from kind of big announcements, it is to scale back uh, the site of the Prime Minister, to go a bit to what sort of Theresa May had in her first period before she called that disastrous election, which was to just kind of be very sort of working away, pop up for a big announcement maybe sort of three, four times a month and then kind of slip away again. And and that's to try and scale back the critique. They've pulled a daily minister doing a round uh, every single day. They're only going to go out with those announcements. And I think so far it is working to kind of tone down the sort of political chaos and by extension try and calm the markets and slightly calm sentiment. But it is going to be an incredibly difficult winter and it still feels like we haven't hit a real cold snap where we're going to see the real problems people are having, heating, uh, feeding themselves in this period. Well, one of the reasons this winter will be difficult is, of course, Russia, which is the subject with which we are starting. Very well teed up there, Vincent. Uh, Russia, as of today, is exactly nine months into its projected 72-hour conquest of Ukraine and still an awkward distance from its objectives. It also appears to be the case that Russia's concentration on Ukraine has prompted a proportionate dereliction of events on its other borders. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has received a somewhat frosty reception on arrival in Yerevan for a summit of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the alliance Moscow founded in 1992 as a sort of counterbalance to NATO. Armenia's Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan wondered out loud where the CSTO... CSTO. 
bad acronym that's the other reason it hasn't caught on, where the CSTO had been when Azerbaijan recently took another whack at his country. Um, Rachel, is this a, a weirdness we have not yet properly considered, that Russia's overcommitment to Ukraine could start to unravel a few things elsewhere in its sphere? I think it is. I do remember in sort of January... Uh, of, of last year before the invasion, Russia analysts saying that actually it wouldn't be a very good idea for Russia to invade Ukraine for precisely this reason, because it has problems of its own with its own alliance with this uh, security alliance, which is sort of the Russian equivalent of NATO, although, as you say, they can't say it in a catchy acronym kind of way. It, it, it might sound better in Russian, and we have to allow that it has lost something in the translation. <laughs> just reverse it, like OTAN with NATO. I mean, it'd be Otskus. That would be, that would be a bit better. <laughs> and that, and that, that sounds that, more Russian. That would sound very Russian. Um, but this is the same idea that if one of the members gets attacked, then they'll all come to its defence. And the problem is is that Russia, the Russian forces are just spread too thin at the moment. They're having enough trouble in Ukraine. They, they can't fulfil their obligations. And the, the summit this week in Armenia, Armenia has been facing attacks uh, on its border with Azerbaijan and has basically been asking, Russia, where are you? And if you can't come and help us, what's the point of you? And more broadly, what is the point of this alliance? Uh, Vincent, also just as excitingly, as recently as September, there was a considerable dust-up between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, which are both supposed to be members of this alliance. Yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't really imagine uh, two NATO members well, fighting against each other. Greece and, and Turkey have had their moments. Yeah, but maybe not to the same to the <laughs> same extent. But yeah, I mean, it does throw into question, as we've just been saying, you know, the commitment in Ukraine is obviously not going well. We've seen the state of the Russian armed forces. Uh, they're unable to move equipment rapidly. Their logistics are failing. And so if you're one of these member states, you would wonder if they can't even kind of get equipment into Ukraine, which they, you know, have kind of closer borders with, where, where their military bases are uh, from using the springboard of Belarus as well. How are they going to get it out sort of sort of their sort of more peripheral borders and into those countries if there is some kind of skirmish? So I think these countries and, you know, looking at how it's going, they're reading the tea leaves. They're looking at China sitting back uh, and throwing no support uh, towards Russia for this, really, uh, and very much taking not a you know they've they've expressed in some ways their frustration at certain points this year over it all uh, they'll be wondering if it is right to sort of keep your hand in with putin and this alliance uh, Rachel, it's probable that most ordinary Russians will not be treated to reports of uh, President Putin receiving something of a wigging from the Prime Minister of Armenia. But Russia's political, military, social, economic elites will be aware of it. And Putin, like all tyrants, of course, relies on projecting strength. I mean, he underpins that with those weirdly camp photo opportunities, uh, riding shirtless on horses and so forth. But does he start to get damaged domestically if it looks like every time he goes out of the country to countries which are not supposed to be just friendly to Russia, but actually submissive to Russia, he kind of gets beaten up on arrival. There was a thing earlier this year where um, Kazakhstan's president, Kasim Yomart Tokayev, uh, had a go at him in public. And I don't want to describe Kazakhstan as a small country. It's about the size of Western Europe, but it is not supposed to be a country that shoves Russia around. No, these, these foreign trips aren't exactly the show of strength abroad that perhaps uh, Russia has got used to. Uh, regardless of what the media reports ordinary people in Russia are getting, and as we know, they're very different to the reports we get over here, um, it, it, 
it's impossible to sort of spin the narrative that this is going well, shall we say. As you, as you started, it was meant to take a matter of days. We're now in um, month nine and Russia has sort of been conscripting soldiers, young men into the army who, quite frankly, don't want to be there and were not aware that fighting on the front line was ever something that was going to be in their future. You can't kind of hide that with propaganda. So to have that on one side and on the other side to see Russia's reputation abroad on a sort of slightly thin ice, I, I think that that will have an impact. I also think that regardless of the media reports that people in Russia are getting, people in in those other periphery states in Armenia, in Belarus, they are also seeing some of the things that we've been seeing here, like uh, Ukrainian farmers who are dragging Russian tanks behind tractors <laughs> and all of all of those kind of moments that uh, were, were great for sort of Ukraine's PR. Some of that will have cut through as well. Well, it, it is the one thing, Vincent, that I think tyrants fear even more than looking weak uh, is looking ridiculous. And those, those images Rachel described... Not known for their sense of humour, those they tyrants, are not, are they? They are not known for their sense of humour at all. But is it possible that what we are witnessing... You know, that there's straws in the wind, you know, Putin getting yelled at in Kazakhstan, getting yelled at now in Armenia, that it might not just be countries near Russia... Uh, that start thinking, well, what's the point of any of this? What kind of friend is Russia? But actually countries within Russia, uh, you know, independent, semi-autonomous republics within Russia with pretensions of nationhood, might there start to become a critical mass of feeling of, well, if not now, then when? Well, that potentially could be if they're getting access to the same material that Rachel just mentioned that we're seeing. You know, one of the most striking videos to me this year was when you were seeing the conscripts uh, being sort of briefed ahead of their deployment uh, and they were being told, this is your uniform, that's it. Contact your wives and girlfriends, get them to send you tampons because they'll be useful if you get shot. You know, you're just seeing that this army is in a complete state of disarray. And it's going to be interesting as well if those kind of internalised parts of Russia do start speaking out, what then happens? Because on the counter reports, what was interesting is that according to uh, Politico on Russia's uh, first channel, um, you then started having some of the commentators saying things like Kazakhstan is the next problem because the same Nazi process can start there as they have in Ukraine. So they're sort of starting to lay the pitch of, well, if this alliance is going to start going down, we'll start to brief against the individual leaders themselves. Uh, And obviously, if it's, you know, a, a kind of proper separate state like Kazakhstan, uh, that has you know sovereignty, then it will be different. But if it is one of those kind of internalised Russian states, then they can move on it much quicker and probably with less outcry in the international community if they do start challenging Russia's motive here. Well, let's look now at Malaysia and the extraordinary saga of its new prime minister, because there are politicians who have taken the long way to the top, and then there is Anwar Ibrahim. Ibrahim, now 75, has been sworn in as prime minister of Malaysia following a half-century odyssey through his country's politics during which he has held several cabinet positions, including that of Deputy Prime Minister, and also been sacked and imprisoned as a consequence of a friendship-turned-feud with interminably serving Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad, now 97, who only just lost his seat in Malaysia's general election this past weekend. Um, Rachel, Mr Ibrahim may be well advised to enjoy this while he can. Uh, He has a hung parliament. He is the fourth Prime Minister in four years. This may not last all that long. But nevertheless, whatever reservations one may have about Mr. Ibrahim or what he stands for, 
should our hearts be warmed by this? Fellow has finally got what he wanted. Well, firstly, as somebody who reports on UK politics, <laughs> uh, four prime ministers in four years. Amateurs. Have, I mean, we have three in three months. Uh, and, uh, and having to get uh, uh, um, the monarch to step in to appoint the prime minister because you've got a hung parliament. Like, yeah, we've got some experience of, of that too, or at least we've got experience of uh, the messiness of when the parliament doesn't give you a, a clear answer or an election doesn't make it quite clear who the, the new leader is, is going to be. Um, but I think we should enjoy this moment, partly because, as you say, it has been decades of, of him sort of attempting to, to get the top job and now he finally has, and also because of what he represents. You know, he he um, split with his mentor basically over corruption in Malaysian politics. He started off as a nationalist and has now become sort of much more open-minded or rhetoric about embracing Malaysia's minority communities and, and how important that is. He's a Muslim, but he ran a more progressive Muslim uh, sort of platform than the one of the the opposition parties, uh, which is but basically wants to bring Sharia law to, to 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 Malaysia. These are all things that I think we can take a moment to to appreciate. And obviously, we are recording this on, on Thanksgiving, so to, to be thankful <laughs> about. Well, and also there is the fact that at the age of seventy-five, relative to Mahathir Mohammed, he's the voice of youth. Um, but but, Vin, but but Vincent, <laughs> yeah, you, you you will know better than most people, Vincent, that one does not arrive at the top of politics without a perhaps unusual degree of determination. But nevertheless, uh, Anwar Ibrahim's case does prompt the question of where that balance lies between determination and just boneheaded obduracy. I mean, many, many lesser people would have thrown in the towel a long time beforehand. And we should emphasise as well that those when we refer to him having been imprisoned, it was no joke. He was imprisoned for quite long periods on mm. fairly obviously nearly a Trump, decade for fairly obvi- on fairly obviously trumped up charges. Yeah, it is interesting to contrast with um, you know Rishi Sunak here in the UK. He only became an MP in 2015, and he's already you know seven years later becomes prime minister. You either get a rapid rise like that, or you have to sit and wait and wait and play uh, a long game as Anwar. Ibrahim has done. And yeah, you do think, you know, there are some people in politics who, you know, have had previous careers who have that to fall back on, um, or that they know that they can get a good opportunity if they go. And there's some who just simply decide, no, this is what I want, I'm going to stick it out. And who knows, you know, to quote Boris Johnson, you know, when the ball comes loose from the ruck, who's going to be able to catch it? And you can just sit in long enough that you do get it. But I think what's interesting, you know, mentioning the corruption charges there, I think there is a bit of a global change in politics in that things that used to prevent people from getting to the very top, Mm. now not so much. I don't think we would have ever got Boris Johnson as Prime Minister of this country without Donald Trump shifting the kind of Overton window of what is acceptable in political life, what level of scandal is okay, what you can dismiss. And so, you know, spending nearly a decade in jail, yes, the charges were probably trumped up. But previously to Trump, I think maybe things like that would still sort of preclude you in the minds of voters because it's a murkiness. And now people are much more willing to just kind of go along with it. I don't know. Malaysia has quite on its own a fairly formidable record of just outstanding political corruption (laughs) requiring absolutely no encouragement or example from Donald Trump. Um, But just that perception of who is who's eligible for the top. Indeed. Office. 
Uh, Rachel, Vincent mentions Boris Johnson, who I think is one of those people who probably will not be told. He clearly wants to have another shot at this. But does that, does that or should that apply to everybody? I mean, should Liz Truss perhaps take heart from Anwar Ibrahim's example and think, you know, I'm, and she is certainly compared to him, a relatively young woman? I mean, from everything I've heard uh, from the people around Liz Truss, she is uh, deeply scarred and traumatised by her experience. And I think... Well, as are we all. <laughs> as are we all, indeed. <laughs> but I think uh, she will be returning to the political scene in the form of giving speeches at fringe right-wing think tanks rather than to, to frontline politics. Uh, Boris Johnson obviously clearly wants another go at it. Does he want to spend uh, four, eight, 12 years in opposition as a backbench MP? Probably not. He's got slightly higher ambitions than that. Again, you'll probably see him on the speech circuit. But I, I think that actually politics does benefit when people who have experience do stick around. We've got Theresa May uh, on the back benches, who's doing a much better job uh, as 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 a, a Tory MP who is criticising her own government than she ever did as Prime Minister. And you think, well, what would the Tory party look like at the moment if uh, David Cameron and George Osborne had stuck around and really fought for their vision of what conservatism is? On the other hand, you've got the US, where they all seem to be in their 70s and 80s. You've got the oldest ever US president who may or may not be running for a second term. You've got um, Nancy Pelosi and, and Mitch McConnell, who are both, I think, in their 80s. Nancy um, Pelosi certainly is. I'm not sure if I'd put money on McConnell, but he wouldn't be far off. I think he might be 80. But, you, but they are people who have sort of been there for so long. Obviously, they, they know a lot, but there is a sort of concern that their refusal to step aside is preventing younger people from, from rising up. And by younger, in this context, I probably mean about 55. <laughs> Well, let's look at China, where there was some speculation that following the recent National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, which more or less cemented President Xi Jinping into his role for life, China might ease up somewhat on its enduringly hardcore COVID-19 regime. Not apparently so. Amid a surge in cases, the highest numbers China has recorded, or at least admitted since the pandemic began, authorities have cracked down hard, to an extent in some cities, including Beijing, which which is not readily distinguishable from peak lockdown. Um, Vincent, this is just getting weird at this point, isn't it? It is, because it's a strategy that hasn't worked anywhere else in the world, uh, and they still don't seem to have a proper vaccine programme. It is just very much, I think, they feel as though if they, the, the ruling party, if they lose faith, lose sort of ground on this, if it looks like they're fallible, if, you know, if, they, if they can get this wrong, then what else have they got wrong? And they're just determined to stick with it, despite it hurting their economy, despite the people themselves becoming incredibly frustrated. They don't seem to be able to create an off-ramp. And it's going to take something quite dramatic, I think, for them to finally shift into a proper vaccination programme and, and just try and live with COVID as we all are doing now. Well, the problem with, of course, the proper vaccination programme is that they might have to use somebody else's vaccines rather than their own, which they won't want to do. But Rachel, I'm, I'm not the first person to have wondered if there is not an additional complication right now uh, for the Chinese Communist Party, which is that the people they are locked up and in, who are locked up and indeed the people who aren't locked up are all watching the World Cup. Football is huge in China. Hundreds of millions of Chinese will be watching the World Cup and they will be watching grandstands full of people who are not wearing masks, uh, who are mixing quite affably uh, and amiably and with not any great sign of any harm being done. Is that going to be a, is that going to be a difficult thing for the CCP to spin? 
I think it's a huge challenge because, as you say, you can see that the world has opened up uh, and for the most part we are managing to, to live with COVID pretty much quite similar to the way that we did a bit before the pandemic. I, I interviewed a, a human rights lawyer a few months ago who sort of made the interesting point that had COVID started in another country, a uh, mm. North American country or Western Europe, um, would we have seen lockdowns at all? Obviously, we would have uh, tried to, to limit contact and we would have desperately tried to find a vaccine and a cure. But this idea that you could lock down entire populations for weeks or months at a time, would that have seemed feasible if we hadn't got the example of it in China right at the beginning? And I, I don't know the answer to that that question. And certainly before vaccines, it did seem that, that some form of lockdown was very necessary. But now that we have these vaccines, now that we know that they work, it, it, it is a choice and it is a political choice in China rather than a public health choice, uh, because it's not just that the vaccines aren't as effective as the Chinese ones as, as the ones that we use here. It's also that a significant proportion of their population, particularly the elderly population, haven't even been vaccinated at all, partly sort of perversely because this zero COVID policy is in place and people feel that they are protected by the zero COVID lockdown policy so they don't necessarily need to get the vaccine. That's a very difficult sort of psychological and political situation to get yourself out of. Um, Vincent, as Rachel correctly observes, this is a political choice the CCP has made, which does prompt the question of why the CCP has made that political choice. And it could just be plain and simple ineptitude, which does often explain the behaviour of massive bureaucracies. It could be obduracy, i.e. a complete boneheaded refusal to admit that our plan hasn't worked, which is a function of bureaucracies and tyrannies. But is there, do you think, and bearing in mind this is the Chinese Communist Party we're talking about, anything to the idea that this might be something more sinister, that in China at least, if you like, uh, what has been predicted by the foil-hatted fulminators of the Western world actually is happening? Well, there is... before even the pandemic, the rollout of the social credit system, mm. uh, which has been incredibly oppressive. And Literally they, an episode on Black Mirror that then came com- to life completely, in, in China. Completely, yeah. Um, and, you know, you were being punished. You, you, they basically employed this workforce of monitors in local communities, some of whom used to enforce the one-child policy. And when that ended, they shifted them over to this. And you would be docked things for spitting in the street or not putting out your rubbish on the right day. It would mean that you were then unable to purchase you know, train tickets, you'd be unable to enter certain venues. It was incredibly draconian. Um, and the population, it was sort of being rolled out across the whole country. Now, this program of, of locking everything down is putting this kind of into warp speed and conditioning people to think that when they do come out of these lockdowns, actually, the social credit system isn't going to seem as bad, perhaps, uh, be, as to what they were, you know, when millions were just getting shut in their homes. But there is such a, there is, I think, two massive dangers to this. One is it's going to do long-term damage to the economy because you've already got companies like Foxconn, mm-hmm. world's biggest chip maker, already looking at shifting into production in India, moving production elsewhere. And if you're a Western company, if you're an Apple or a Microsoft, and you're thinking about this this level of disruption, but also the kind of real power that Xi Jinping has taken now complete control of stuff, you know, saber rattling with Taiwan, they are going to start to think, well, is there other 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 countries that we should be shifting this into? But the, the, the second thing I say is the real danger is, yes, whilst the, you know, the Communist Party does have huge control and there are many people willing to go along with it because they're invested in the system. 
We've all seen the danger, I think, in our own lives of what lockdown did to people. There was a lot of reflection on life, on the way people want things, mm. lots of relationship breakdown. If you're Vladimir Putin, you know, two years <laughs> of stewing about the fall of the USSR and then invading Ukraine, you know, not everyone baked banana bread and did knitting. It was dangerous to some people and it could lead to a rise in people if they, as you say, watch the World Cup, see the rest of the world going about normally, thinking, why have we not got this? Where, where's this going? Well, which again makes me wonder, Rachel, it was a, a pet theory that occurred to me once or twice when I, you know, contemplated the response to COVID-19 of my own country, Australia, which obviously went extremely hardcore where its relationship to the outside world was concerned in that it stopped having one. Um, that there are some countries China among them, Australia definitely among them, which have had long histories of isolation and maybe uh, discovered that they kind of liked it or weren't all that bothered by not being isolated. Whereas in the UK, we seem to think that because we were an island, we could pursue that kind of policy and it became <laughs> obvious very, very quickly uh, that we couldn't. Uh, and I think that, that that is certainly a factor. But in, in terms of... Um, the reflection of lockdown and, and, and the kind of reality of it making you reconsider your your life or your relationship with the government or, or with the the state. Um, it's not just about football matches, uh, important as that is, although I should say that I'm not watching the World Cup. So, you know, football is, as they all say, not a matter of life or death. It's much more important. But there was a case uh, of a lockdown of a baby that was that that died and didn't get medical attention in China because there were parents who were in a lockdown facility and the ambulance crew wouldn't see the baby and the baby died. Now, the way that China's quite autocratic system works is the idea that the West does all of its own thing um, and the Chinese model is, is different and is superior in its own way and look at all these things that China can do that the West can't because they don't have democracy in the same way. They have their own system. When you've got children dying because ambulance crews won't see them because of the COVID policy... And you're watching the World Cup at the same time. I think that logic starts to fray a bit because people realise that their relationship with the state isn't giving them the benefits and the security that that kind of trade-off was meant to come with. One and a half billion people all having existential nervous breakdowns. That is something to look forward to. But we will now discuss the story I know all our listeners were waiting to hear more about, which is that one forward-thinking or perhaps, who knows, attention-seeking French chef has announced plans to combine the preoccupations of his hometown of Toulouse, i.e. gastronomy and aerospace, and grow cabbage on the moon. And why not? Much Michelin-starred snail-slinger Thierry Marx has asked the students of his cooking school to work on recipes which use only vegetables which might be reared in a sort of high-tech terrarium to the limited extent that I understand any of this which could incubate plants in space. Um, Rachel, does this sound like something a high-end chef really should be doing? I mean, I'm not... I, my concern, one of my concerns here is that this is not necessarily perhaps the best use of Thierry Marx's time. I don't know what you're talking about. I would 100% <laughs> go to that restaurant and eat space cabbage. And what's more, I think there'll be a massive queue of people to do it. I mean, if you think of all the people who have already signed up for the non-existent flights into space that Elon Musk is offering, I think the chance to have space cabbage in a, in a French restaurant would be, would be very popular. Um, but there's an important point as well, which is that the ability to have fresh vegetables and, and fruit is, is important for astronauts who are in space for 
months or years at a time. So the idea that you could grow them in this special box, which by the way, weighs about half a ton, it's really heavy, but you can monitor the light and you can monitor the carbon dioxide and the oxygen. You could have this sort of perfect space for, for vegetables to grow. That's actually really exciting. And if we want to make space travel in any way plausible or commercial, we're going to need innovations like this. Even if we don't want to do it in space, if we want to do it here and our food security is threatened, that's quite exciting too. So I am, I'm really excited by the, the space cabbage. And if I got the opportunity to try some... 100%. The, the thing that I am encouraged by here, Vincent, is my own brief experiences of having consumed French military rations in a couple of... Not in space, once in Kosovo, once in Afghanistan, I think, and once up a hill somewhere in the Southern Alps. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually pretty good, unsurprisingly. The French do have a habit of trying to do these utilitarian practical things in style. But my question is, if cabbage was all there was, would you go to the moon? Uh, I think there needs to be more on the menu than, than cabbage. <laughs> it, it says here that tomatoes and other items will apparently be considered, but they, they seem to be doubling down on carrot cabbage. Either there's really good scientific reasons for that, or Thierry Marx just has a whole load of... cabbage it. once again, you or, know, flexing its muscles. And Thierry Marx has just over-ordered. He's got, he's got lorry loads <laughs> of the stuff he can't shift. I think it is fascinating, and I think... You know, with these space stories, there's often a lot of eye rolling and people saying, oh, the money could be spent elsewhere. So many things in our day to day lives are descendants from the innovations made in in the space program. I, I, I for one, would not care if there wasn't. I would have, <laughs> I, I would not be remotely bothered if space exploration had no collateral benefits whatsoever. I just think it's great. Uh, yeah, I'm fully fully on board with it. But, you know, everything from microwaves to mobile phones, so, so many of the technologies that we use every day in our lives have come from space programs. So food security as the climate disaster carries on, is going to become more and more important. There are definitely lessons to be learned from this. I think they should definitely expand out from just cabbage. I think you need some potatoes. I think anyone <laughs> can survive. Maybe this is my Irishness coming out, but I think you really just, you can do anything with a potato. Uh, and if they could get those going on the moon, that would be pretty good. Well, as a final thought from each of you then, and I will start with you, Rachel, not wishing to tell Thierry Marx uh, how to do his job, but do you have a favourite cabbage recipe or a preferred means of consuming it? Well, I don't cook, uh, but when I am being cooked for, red cabbage with um, just lightly sautéed with uh, balsamic vinegar and with some goat's cheese on top, it's absolutely delicious. How you get the goat's cheese into space, I don't know, but that's a, that's a problem for a French chef rather than for me. I mean, goats in space, that is... that, that, that that's <laughs> Goats uh, on the moon! I, I, I think, honestly, that could cause more problems than it solves. They are great uh, climbers, yeah. though. I mean, yeah. they'd be great on that terrain. It's, it sounds like an indie album cover, doesn't it? Goats <laughs> on the moon. Um, Vincent? No, I think it would be... Um you know, Houston, we have a problem. I, I can't think of that many recipes that of red cabbage that I'm really that big a fan of. I think this needs to be a pretty diverse menu. But a potato, but, on the other hand. But a potato, you can do anything with a potato, all sorts of things. And, you know, throw in sweet potatoes as well. You've got you've got a great time up there. Are you, are you angling for a position as culinary consultant to the Irish space programme there, Vincent? Definitely, definitely. Uh, Vincent McAvenny and Rachel Cunliffe, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, many viewers around the world were appalled and bemused 
news this week when Laura McAllister, former captain of the Welsh women's football team and past FIFA Council candidate, was told she could not wear her rainbow bucket hat as she entered a World Cup stadium in Qatar for Wales' opening match against the United States. The disbarring of McAllister's headgear followed an instruction that national team captains, including Wales's Gareth Bale, who had planned to wear rainbow-striped one-love armbands, should not. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. And Laura McAllister joins me now from there. Laura, first of all, I, I have to ask, because we only saw the video, not and didn't hear the audio, what did they actually say to you about your hat and why you couldn't wear it? Well, that, that's the issue, really. They didn't say anything. Um, they just told uh, me and others who were ahead of us in the queue to remove our rainbow bucket hats. They, they didn't actually explain why, and I did ask several times what was the reason for having to take the hat off. And the uh, female security guard said, first of all, regulation. And then when I said which regulation, um, they repeated regulation. And then eventually one of their, I assume, supervisors who had been standing a bit further away came up and just uh, insisted again that we took the hats off. But we certainly didn't get any explanation as to why we needed to take the hats off. Uh, and, and have they made any gesture towards returning the hats? Uh, well, I can't really answer that one because I did actually retain my hat because we had an option of um, taking the hats to what they called a restricted area, um, restricted goods area, which is quite some distance actually from the turnstiles. And bear in mind, we'd already queued up for you know the best part of 30 or 40 minutes to get to that point. Um, but they did say to me that if I went out and, and took the hat there, I'd be allowed to come through a sort of fast track channel. But I, I didn't really think that the hats would still be there when we came out. So I tucked mine away after, out of view and came back in without wearing it, by the way, but, um, you know, in, in my pocket. So I, I did uh, I did keep mine. But I, I've heard stories of other fans who were told to put them in a bin um, or to just leave them with the security guards with no guarantees, obviously, that they would have them back at the end of the game. I mean, obviously preposterous though all this is, we are talking after all about a bucket hat with stripes on it and stripes arranged in a colour and an order which occurs quite naturally. Um, <laughs> are you surprised by what a mess FIFA has made of handling this? Because it's not like that this was not discussed at any point in the 12 years between Qatar being awarded the World Cup and the World Cup kicking off. It's been discussed several times, um, and we have we have had several assurances because of the position with regard to LGBT people in Qatar. We sought those reassurances that rainbow attire and rainbow flags would be committed in the stadia here, and we we have that in writing in several different uh, 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 occasions. So, yes, of course, we were surprised because. It was almost as if we hadn't really had to think about it in the run-up to the uh, actual games because we were told quite categorically that rainbow hats and rainbow armbands and rainbow wristbands were all permitted. So it was a, it was a surprise, you know, I have to say. I, I literally hadn't thought about it until someone ahead of us in the queue said that they'd had these problems actually getting through the security. You know, and to, and to answer your first question, am I surprised? Um, well, not really. I think, you know, when Qatar was awarded the tournament 12 years ago, lots of us had serious misgivings about holding a tournament uh, as big as the World Cup in a place like Qatar for, for a whole host of different reasons. 
But I think what we've got to remember in all of this is that this is a FIFA World Cup, you know, not a Qatar World Cup. It's a FIFA World Cup held in Qatar. And FIFA's line on this has been that everyone is welcome and that it's a World Cup for everybody, that it's inclusive and so on. And clearly they weren't able to enforce that in any shape or form in terms of behaviour of local officials. And I think that's pretty scandalous. I mean, the rainbow armbands, which you mentioned, became a flashpoint just before kickoff. Several uh, captains of the competing teams had signalled their intention to wear them uh, as their captain's armband. These were the, the, the one love armbands. Uh, the Football Associations of England, Wales and others all buckled pretty quickly when it was suggested that those might incur a yellow card. And obviously, you have represented Wales at football yourself and you, you would have a player's perspective of this. What do you think? Should the players have just stood up and said, I'm going to wear the armband and the referee can do his worst? Well, I think we just have to be a bit careful because the timing was engineered, in my opinion, very deliberately to put the greatest pressure on the players at a time when they could least afford to focus on anything other than football. And I mean, remember, this came to England first because their game was earlier than ours on the on the Monday. Um, and this we're talking about hours before kickoff. You know, it, it really, you know, shouldn't happen that players are put in that invidious position where they're having to make a decision. Whether the decision is right or wrong, you know, is 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 not something I can comment on because I don't I really don't think this should have happened at the time it happened. If this had happened a week before, then the players could have had a meeting, they could have discussed the issue and come to some conclusion about what they wanted to do. But I think it was very deliberately put on to the players just hours before kickoff. So there was no chance of consultation as a group there was no chance of the uh, captains of what we, we I think we can fairly call progressive national associations getting together to see if we could have a collective position on this um, and I think that's really unfortunate but I'm afraid very deliberate um, so you know the last thing we want to do is see a player punished for something that isn't anything to do with the field of play and play on that pitch and that's what um, FIFA were threatening. I mean, I, mean, I believe, I, I obviously wasn't there, but I believe they were told that they would face sanctions of a yellow card and more. Now, you know, that's a very difficult position to put a player in. You know, he's about to represent his country, in our case, for the first time in 64 years and asking them, you know, to, to venture into the unknown, really. Now, I appreciate people might say, yes, they should have and they should have uh, taken the punishment. But I wonder if people would have felt the same had that punishment been an immediate red card for Gareth Bale or for um, Harry Kane. Um, we can argue the, the pros and cons of it, and I think there are pros and cons of it. But the reality is this should never have happened in the way it did. What have you made of the efforts that players, some players have made to make their feelings known despite these strictures? We've seen Wales, your country, uh, training rather pointedly with rainbow striped flags at the end of the pitch. Uh, and we saw the German team, of course, all putting their hands over their mouths for their pre-match team photo. Yes, I mean, I think it shows just how aware players are, certainly some of the players here, um, the Germans, uh, the English, the Welsh, about how concerned people are at home about things that are going on. And I, I think that's to be encouraged. You know, I know that the players, the German players did it off their own back. Um, I think us as a squad in Wales uh, feel very passionate about human rights for everybody, you know, whether it's human rights for migrant workers here or for LGBT people or for women. 
And therefore, you know, I think it's it's incumbent on us to live those values and those beliefs whilst we're actually in a FIFA World Cup, wherever that is, by the way. And this one just happens to be in Qatar. So why would we not do that? You know, if, if anything, it puts a greater onus on us to show that um, we believe LGBT rights are human rights and that everyone should have the opportunity to be themselves, their authentic selves and live the lives, lives that they want to. Uh, I'll close, Laura, on hopefully a slightly more upbeat note. You alluded earlier to the fact that this is the first time Wales are playing at a World Cup since 1958, uh, when they were knocked out in the quarterfinals 1-0 against Brazil by a teenager called Pelé. Um, How big a deal is this not just for Welsh football, but for Wales? Oh, it's a very big deal. I mean, I think we knew it would be really once we got over that playoff hurdle against Austria and Ukraine because it, you know, it's been a very long time, six decades, as you say, but um, Wales is a very different country to the country it was in the 1950s. Um, you know, we're, we're a very modern, vibrant country. Some people's views of Wales haven't kept pace with that either. You know, and we, because there's such little brand awareness of Wales as a marketeer would say across the world, People still think of Wales as being a, a land of coal mines and choirs and so on, whereas, you know, we're, we're a country that has probably one of the most radical green agendas of any country in Europe and a, a country where um, equal rights for women and for gay people are right at the heart of everything we do. So I think it's given us an opportunity, really, to project an image of Wales that is modern and inclusive and diverse and outward-looking to the rest of the world because you know when you're in the same group as as England the juxtaposition of, of England and Wales means it's very easy to show to the rest of the world that Wales is not a region of England or some adjunct to England it's a separate nation with its own language with its own culture with its own anthem um, and I think we've shown that already you know where I, I was, I've been told by several people that already our anthem is deemed to be the loudest and best sung in the World Cup and our flag has won competitions for being the nicest flag so you know we, we're it's very, very important for us because what we can do with that, of course, is is translate that back into economic benefits for Wales, into tourism, into promoting Welsh universities, into pr- promoting our well-being and future generations, sustainability agenda. So it's massive politically for us as well as on the sports field. Laura McAllister, thank you for joining us. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Rachel Cunliffe and Vincent McAvenny. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.